Welcome to the Clifford Chance podcast, where our experts and colleagues discuss pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. This is the second in our series, Clifford Chance on Credit, looking at topical issues and trends in the debt market, and in particular, debt and credit investments by funds and asset managers. Today's session focuses on debt funds. This is a buoyant and growing part of the fund formation market. We continue to see strong interest in setting up debt funds from the asset management arms of large financial investors, such as pensions and insurance groups. We see this interest across the global network and across a range of different strategies within the debt fund market, including real estate credit, infrastructure credit, and corporate credit. I am joined today by my partner, Richard Callagher, a partner in the tax department who focuses on asset management and investment management, and two senior associates in the London Private Funds Group, Jonathan Bray and Lily Marcel. So our podcast today is going to provide a short overview of the market. We'll discuss some key structuring considerations relevant to fund sponsors and investors when setting up debt fund and debt fund platforms. And then we'll share some insights on current trends that we are seeing and hot topics in the market that we encounter during negotiations between fund managers and their investors. So to start off, I think it's helpful to provide an overview of what we mean when we're talking about the debt fund market. So, so Lily, could you tell us exactly what we think of when we think of the debt funds we're talking about here? Yes, absolutely. So um, we are talking about private pooled investment products for institutional investors. And actually, when we talk about debt funds, we're covering a really wide range of strategies. Um, so we um, might, will cover direct lending, infrastructure debt, real estate debt, leveraged loans, um, but also funds that acquire asset-backed securities, structured assets, CLOs, um, for example. Well, the strategies also differentiate themselves by reference to where that debt might fit in the capital stack. So whether you're looking at senior debt or focusing on junior debt or indeed unitranche um, or whole loan debt where uh, both the senior and the subordinated aspects of the debt are combined into one loan. Uh, the strategies also will differentiate themselves by reference to um, sectors, so you might find um, debt funds that focus specifically on healthcare or, or tech or shipping, aviation, and by reference to whether they are originating loans or acquiring loans via syndication. Um, finally, you should just mention that there are also a number of um, uh, different geographies that debt funds will focus on. So we see developed market debt funds and emerging market funds. We, some, we see some funds that actually focus on just just one country um, or, um, or a range. So really, um, I guess what um, I, I would highlight is that, uh, that when we come on to talk about structure, trends, and terms, there can't ever really be a one-size-fits-all approach uh, because we're talking about such a, such a wide range of products and the, um, with, with different risk and return profiles, which will therefore affect economics and also structure. Um, and I think in terms of you know, one interesting trend is, is sort of the LP interest in, um, in, in the different types of debt strategies. So Jonathan, do you want to um, talk a little bit about that? Thanks, Lily. 
the first thing to say there is that the Clipper Chance Network is seeing a strong and growing demand for debt products um, globally. And to put this in context, Prequin, a data provider, projects that private debt strategies are going to be a $1.4 trillion market by 2023. And so despite a slowdown slow in fundraising activity in the H1 of this year due to COVID, it's an extremely buoyant and growing asset class. And there's a few really good reasons for that. The first one is that it allows investors to choose a particular debt product with a specific return profile that meets their internal requirements. And as Lily mentioned, there's a whole range of different products. And to that I'd add post GFC and equally post COVID, we're seeing particular interest in distressed and opportunistic debt strategies. And in terms of the categories of investors in this market, um, the main groups that we see are public pension funds. There's also strong investment activity by insurance companies, sovereign wealth funds, um, private investment foundations, as well as banks and other asset managers. And debt is particularly attractive to these types of investors because it's a good way to access alternative investment classes participation in buyouts, for instance, without taking the equity risk. And at the other end of the risk scale, senior debt is very attractive for investors who do a lot of fixed income investment activity, but like the, the better returns that debt products can bring. The last thing to say is that debt products tend to be very attractive because they don't have what's called a J curve. And that means that unlike a private equity strategy where the performance of the fund dips in the early years where investments are going to be made, but before profits start flowing through, debt funds tend to generate income very quickly. And that's very attractive for pension funds, insurance groups and other investors who need a current stream of income over a long period of time. Thanks, Jonathan. Lily. You've described what sounds like a very attractive and growing segment of the private funds market, you know, a segment that's broad both in terms of strategy, of geography, and participants, both from the sponsor and an investor perspective. So for our clients who are thinking about setting up credit platforms or some clients who indeed have established credit platforms, what are those sort of basics to think about from a structure perspective if you're considering putting in place or considering investing in a debt fund platform? So when we talk to our clients about setting up a new debt product, we will spend quite a lot of time with them understanding what they're looking to achieve with the particular uh, product and really understand what their requirements are so that we can formulate a bespoke, robust, and hopefully a straightforward structure that is simple to operate, um, but that addresses all the legal, tax, and regulatory requirements in the, um, the jurisdictions that are relevant. And that really is probably the first question that we will be asking. So w what are the relevant jurisdictions? Firstly, we would want to, of course, work out where actually is the sponsor, where are the investment professionals that will be sourcing investments, um, but also where are the investors? And where are the investments going to be? So we will look at the target investor list and we'll consider 
whether the fund would benefit from the ability to market easily into the EU, in which case a, an EU marketing passport might be desirable, and that might take us towards an EU fund structure that would have access to that passport. We'll also look at the sponsor's existing presence in the jurisdiction. So we may have a sponsor that already has a range of fund products, for example, private equity funds, and has an existing relationship with service providers in a particular jurisdiction, um, has existing um, fund structures operating in, um, in that jurisdiction. And, and that would, of course, uh, sway us towards starting with that jurisdiction and then assessing whether we, we should go elsewhere because of the specifics of the, um, the debt fund structure or its investors. Um, we also look at where the target borrowers are, um, and it's really important to think about what the withholding tax position will be um, in relation to loans made to those borrowers, and that's something that Richard will um, talk about in, in a moment. Other aspects that we need to understand is, is, is really drill down into the, the strategy and think about things like, well, is the fund going to be leveraged? Uh, so, for example, loan-on-loan -loan financing is now increasingly popular in Europe as an alternative to syndication, but that, also, that does have an impact on the, um, on the regulatory treatment of the fund, and is something to consider both in terms of the choice of the fund structure, but also investor preferences. Um, and then moving on, to, so once we've, for example, decided that we've got a fund manager who has an existing fund um, platform in Luxembourg, is looking to market to a lot of EU investors and therefore would benefit from, that, from the EU marketing passport, we may then decide on Luxembourg and think, well, then what is the appropriate choice of vehicle in Luxembourg and what is the appropriate regulatory regime? So when looking at the, the vehicle, we'll, we'll think about things like, does it achieve limited liability for investors? Can we have sufficient flexibility to reflect the, uh, the, the desired commercial terms? Is the vehicle tax transparent? Are investors familiar with it? Um, now, I'd say that we see limit, Luxembourg limited partnerships, limited partnerships generally, used a lot for debt funds. But in certain circumstances, we do also see corporate vehicles, such as Luxembourg SAs, for example. And, um, and, and Richard, again, will talk about some of the other tax considerations that would influence the choice of vehicle um, and the, uh, the regulatory regime that uh, is often overlaid. So, for example, do you have an unregulated structure or do you opt in to have a more highly regulated structure? Uh, finally, I would just mention that in terms of downstream structuring, um, we, once we've set up, we've decided on the, uh, the jurisdiction and the choice of vehicle for the fund itself, we will often, when setting up a debt fund, work out what that downstream structure will look like at the outset. When we structure private equity funds, for example, the downstream structure is often put in place on a case-by-case -case basis when investments are made. But for debt funds, we may well set up the underlying holding structure and the mechanism for funding that at the time of putting in place the fund structure as well. Um, now, there is a lot of uh, tax to think about when we, um, 
when we when we come up with these fund structures and the underlying downstream structure. So, Richard, could you talk us through some of those key considerations? Yeah, thanks, Lily. Um, I think perhaps the, the key takeaway um, is really that there, there isn't a one-size-fits-all um, answer to downstream structuring. Um, as Lily mentioned, one key point to consider on any credit fund is the relevance of withholding tax on interest for the underlying debt. Now, the extent to which withholding tax is relevant, and therefore hence represents a potential drag on fund returns, will depend on probably three key items. The first is the nature of the security that the fund or the manager is looking to invest into. So is the strategy to invest into listed securities or private debt? If it's listed securities, withholding tax shouldn't be relevant, but if private debt, it may well be. Now, moving on, if you're looking at private debt, the next key item then is where will the borrowers be located? Will they be located in jurisdictions that do impose withholding tax, such as the UK, jurisdictions that do not, such as France, or more commonly, a combination of both? And then the final key point in terms of the asset level structuring and the need for it is the location and identity of the investors in the fund. And so once you have the answers to all of those questions, that would dictate the extent to which underlying asset level structuring is needed and indeed the nature of that structuring. Now, moving on from withholding taxes, another key issue that will influence the underlying asset level structuring is the fund strategy. So to take a few examples, strategies such as the opportunistic trading in listed debt or perhaps the acquiring of private loans at a discount with a view to making a profit both on the interest coupon, but also on the pool to par, or perhaps um, the lending of loans with a view to generating profit, again, not just from the loan return, but from the related fees, origination fees and the like. Each of those possible different strategies would again give rise to very different structuring considerations. And so whilst they're all points of detail that need to be worked through carefully, I think the key message and the key point for the podcast is just to understand that the strategy and the assets and the location of those investors and borrowers will be very important in terms of structuring, and there isn't a single solution uh, for all credit funds. Thank you, Richard and Lily. It sounds like location, 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 and strategy. So that's a really helpful overview, I think. Um, of the points to consider, you know, when structuring a debt fund. We move beyond the structuring towards engagement by debt fund sponsors with their investors. Jonathan, what sort of trends on terms are you seeing in the current market? Well, it's a really interesting time to be working on credit funds because while US, in the US, alternative lenders have been active for over 20 years, in the EU, the market really only developed post-GFC. And so the trends are moving very quickly. But I'll talk about three or four key items. And the first one is new entrants into the market. And as we mentioned at the beginning, in the last few years, we've seen the entry into the market of the asset management arms of many banks and institutional investors who previously really mainly managed balance sheets and creditor money. And 
it's interesting because these groups are using third-party capital raised through funds to increase their lending firepower in the markets. And given the additional fee income that the fund will generate to boost their own profitability. And this change is going to accelerate strongly, we think, due to the recent credit fund exclusion under the Volcker rule, which we'll touch on later. The next current trend I talk about is not particularly surprising, and that's management fees. And fees at the moment are a really key focus of negotiations between the investors in a private debt fund and the manager. Now, there's a few reasons for this. Um, the first one is that unlike a private equity fund, which will typically deploy capital over a relatively long five-year period and have a 10 to 12 or longer year term, debt funds are normally raised and deployed much more quickly. And so that gives rise to a more permanent fundraising mindset among debt fund managers. They're also much more likely to run multi-strategy products and be raising lots of products at the same time. And for this reason, LPs are continually negotiating with and talking to debt fund providers. The next reason fees are particularly under pressure is that we're at a late period in the cycle, which means that investors are approaching their commitments to funds a bit more thoughtfully. And as you'd expect, fundraising activity has slowed slightly due to the COVID environment. The downward trajectory of fees isn't particularly marked though. And while discounts are being offered um, to large commitments, we still see many of the high return debt products, for example, mezzanine debt funds, attracting a carried interest of 15 or 20%, much in the same way as private equity products. And Jonathan, the trends that you're talking about in the market, you know, it sounds like a lot of this this movement are terms that you would you know, associate mm -hmm. with a pooled private investment fund. Is is this accurate or is this applicable to other types of funds in the market as well? I think it's very much other types of products because although fundraising activity is very buoyant with the large pooled commingle funds, what we're also seeing is a great rise in separate account mandates or funds of one. Now, the reason for this is large institutional investors are looking to tailor their investment products. And if they've got a lot of capital to deploy, they're doubling down and seeking really strong relationships with key managers who can tailor the terms of the debt product to their own requirements. And debt is particularly well suited to this because as mentioned, lots of the debt managers have a platform offering. So they're likely to have many debt funds with slightly different strategies and bring along co-investment capital from segregated accounts or other products alongside their main flagship funds. And this gives rise to great economies of scale. Um, and generally, investors are very comfortable with this this approach, but it does mean that if you're acting on the manager side, you need to be quite careful around conflicts of interest between your different products and making sure that um, where you're bringing in capital together, what you're not doing is bringing in capital in a way that could give rise to a conflict further down the road. For example, if you've got one fund making a senior investment and another fund making a mezzanine investment secured by the same capital. And part of this uh, trend towards giving investors what they were, want 
is also seen at the bottom end of the investor commitment scale with a general trend towards managers offering more optionality in their fund products. Now, what do I mean by optionality? Well, it can take a few forms. The first thing is currency options. So if you have a fund which is mainly denominated in dollars, say, what we're increasingly seeing is it's quite attractive for the manager to be able to offer a euro denominated sleeve too in order to make the fund product more attractive for euro investors. And that's particularly the case for smaller investors who perhaps find it easier not to have to manage through an internal treasury function their, their currency exposure. The second thing and link factor is hedging. Um, even where you have a main fund product which is just denominated in a single currency, um, some of our clients like to offer both hedged and unhedged options for the same reason, to give investors the chance of investing in the sleeve that best suits their own internal requirements. The next common option is leverage, and particularly for senior debt products, um, it's quite common for the strategy to target a term leverage of perhaps up to 50% of investor commitments. However, in the European context, it's not uncommon for certain investors to have constitutional or legal restrictions on their ability to enter into leveraged products. And for this reason, for our fund sponsors who are targeting a, a large global offering, it's attractive to be able to offer both leveraged and unleveraged options to investors in the fund. And the last most sophisticated type of optionality we see is where the strategy itself offers particular options. And we tend to see this, for example, in large global direct lending platforms where the majority of interests and investments might be senior debt, for example, but the fund has the ability to make selective junior investments with a higher, with a, a higher multiple or loan to value. And in those cases, um, the biggest managers are considering optionality to allow investors to opt out of those, those high return loans if they prefer a a lower risk investment. Well, it really, I mean, it really does sound like, you know, you're continuing the theme of describing a market in Europe in particular, uh, but also globally that has just grown in breadth of strategies and options for investors and types of structures and types of returns. It really does sound like a quite uh, interesting movement that we've seen during the past you know, five to 10 years as the European market has matured and developed and sponsors have become uh, more diverse in their offerings to to investors. I think we'd be you know, remiss not to talk a bit about COVID, Jonathan, you mentioned it briefly, um, you know, but a lot of sponsors, investors, and industry participants will be curious as to how this market that we've been describing on this podcast has been impacted um, you know, by COVID in the past six months. But what sort of thoughts or trends have you seen? Yeah, that's exactly right. And of course, COVID has a huge impact upon debt portfolios um, and investment activity in particular. And I think the first thing that our, that our teams are seeing is that both managers and investors have been extremely focused on their existing portfolios of investments. So in the debt space, um, everyone has been extremely focused on covenant breaches and any enforcement activity on non-performing loans. 
And in a fun context, that's given rise to a really increased degree of communication between the managers and the investors, um, describing you know how the how the fund products are performing, um, what capital is already deployed, but also the plans for future capital. And I think. In my experience, what we're seeing is that the very best managers have used this tool to cement their relationships with their investor base. And conversely, the managers who've been less done less well on LP communication, um, you know, have been have performed less well. The other thing we're seeing is that in the COVID environment, the market has been changing very quickly indeed. And so, for funds that in the past perhaps only made more plain vanilla loans to corporates for leveraged buyouts, for example, they're beginning to see a lot more attractive investment opportunities in slightly different types of assets. And so what we've been helping many of our clients to do is to assess what flexibility they have in their fund documents. For example, to take positions in other types of assets like CLOs, REITs, um, and other assets that are being repositioned. We've also seen some changes to the terms of the fund itself. And it's worth saying that despite the, the slowdown in fundraising activity through COVID, managers have continued to work and raise fund products and we continue to see closings across the, across the market. But a few terms are changing. In particular, fundraising periods are lengthening as investors are moving a bit more slowly or have been moving more slowly through lockdown. And we're also seeing investment periods lengthening to allow the markets a bit more time to accelerate as, as Europe emerges from lockdown. Thank you. That's interesting. You know, again, a very high-level overview, um, you know, keen to think about and talk about these terms with other players, players in the market. But I do also want to turn, Lily, to something that I know you, you're quite passionate about, um, across the fund and asset management space, which is environmental, social, and government trends and um, benchmarks and considerations. I know you work quite a bit on, you know, in addition to the debt funds we've been talking about on sustainable funds, but you're also thinking about how um, how ESG policies impact funds across across the spectrum. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about if that's impacting the debt fund space as well. Yes, absolutely. And, and it feels like this is a, a topic that could um, merit a session in its own right, um, but I will try and keep it quite brief. Um, I think on the, um, the relevance of ESG and, and um, uptake of ESG amongst uh, debt fund managers, we have seen um, a record number of debt fund, private debt fund managers become signatories to ESG frameworks in, in 2019. And that, that number's been growing um, for the last three years, I think before that. It's traditionally been um, an area of the market that's been a bit slower to embrace ESG policies and frameworks. There's been a little bit less focus historically on how to invest responsibly in private debt. We're obviously talking about funds that don't have sort of ownership and control positions. So the the literature that is coming out is is very interesting around um, how to um, manage risks, but also the links between good ESG practices of borrowers and their creditworthiness. So we are seeing a lot more focus on this, um, and that is is partly a function of the 
new sustainable finance legislation, which, as you, as you say, this is something I've been following a lot um, more generally. The disclosure regulation and the taxonomy that have come out of the EU Sustainable Finance um, Action Plan will affect a very broad range of our managers. So, absent any future guidance to the contrary, the disclosure regulation does have an extraterritorial effect. So, it will not just impact our debt fund managers that are EU AFIMs. It would also impact non-EU AFIMs that bring themselves within the scope of AIFMD by marketing to European investors in the EU. And that is really causing managers to focus a lot on how they integrate sustainability risk into their investment decisions and also to think about how they are considering, how they factor in the impact of their investment decisions on wider sustainability factors. The disclosure regulation will require disclosures about ESG integration um, in a number of different formats. There are certain criteria that apply specifically to sustainability-focused products, but, but some will apply to all products across the board. So we are seeing managers generally, including debt fund managers, thinking uh, very carefully about what that will mean for them and how they need to change their websites, their, their pre-contractual documentation, and their reporting. I think the other reason for the, um, the, the increased focus on ESG within the, the private debt fund space is it's becoming a really hot topic for investors. Um, and interestingly, I think a lot of we see a lot of uh, U.S. Uh, public pension plans investing in debt funds, and uh, part of their increased focus on, on ESG is often attributed to the, the sort of green lash, so the uh, reaction to, to U.S. governmental policies um, that are um, uh, actually less, you know, um, environmentally friendly. And when we're seeing a number of those large U.S. investors asking for um, a lot more in terms of side letter protection and um, due diligence on ESG issues, including in, in the debt funds they invest in. Um, I think that's probably enough on on ESG. <laughs> but um, so as you say, I think uh, I think almost a sort of separate topic in its own right that could take up you know full podcast. And for for clients and colleagues who are interested in learning you know more about our work in sustainable finance, as I was mentioning, there's sort of a wealth of information I think available to you on the Clifford Jams website. Uh, also, please feel free to contact Lily or me without wanting to um, drown Lily's inbox. It's, it's a particular area of focus um, for, for her career across different types of funds um, and applicable, as you say, Lily, to the investment management space generally, not just not just debt funds. I think we wanted to mention one more topic, which, again, continuing on the theme of um, changes that are applicable to the investment management industry generally, but does have an important impact for debt fund participants as well, and that's the changes to the Volcker rule. Um, so switching switching gears a bit from ESG to U.S. regulatory, could you give us a brief overview of the proposed changes? Yes, of course. So there's been a dramatic shake-up to the rules uh, that used to restrict U.S. banking groups from raising debt funds. So there was a final rule that was proposed earlier this year, and it came into force on the 1st of October. Um, so what the rule, the Volcker rule previously did 
is it prohibited banking entities from engaging in proprietary trading with, or owning interest in, or sponsoring credit funds? And the final rule now contains a credit fund exclusion. So this creates lots of new opportunities for banking entities to sponsor and to invest in certain credit funds. And it will also allow credit funds that are pursuing certain strategies to at attract new investments from banks um, and also from um, the affiliates and subsidiaries of banks. So overall, this is a, quite a big change to the previous position, and we've seen a lot of managers and investors focusing on this. That's great. Um, Richard, with apologies for sort of asking you to wrap things up with some tax points at the end, I feel that often I, I, I ask you to say the tax points <laughs> to the end. Um, would it be possible for you to tell us a bit about what you're expecting on the horizon, you know, in respect of tax considerations for asset managers, asset managers generally? Sure. Um, I think in terms of, I mean, the horizon and sort of tax um, changes and, and sort of, I guess, changing tax approach that um, might be willing to structure, um, again, both of, of the fund and at the asset level. I think really it's rather looking forward too much, we perhaps need to look back um, and, and then think of the, the future implications. Because the key point really for everyone listening um, is from a tax perspective, is really the continued rollout of tax law changes emanating from the OECD's BEPS project. Uh, now whilst the project is not new, the practical implications of those rules, and so in particular, I think from a fund perspective, you have the hybrid, uh, rules, um, both hybrid vehicles such as a fund or an asset holding vehicle, hybrid instruments, and does your debt, is it a vanilla debt or does it have equity like features which could give rise to asymmetry in sort of tax and accounting treatment uh, for different investors, different borrowers, um, and also the application of the new interest barrier rules which are being rolled out throughout Europe. And each of those issues continue to be really a key focus for managers and looking forward, Gerard, to your point about what's on the horizon, I think the question that everyone's currently grappling with is how will tax authorities interpret the, these new regimes and how will they apply to funds such as credit funds? Because that, as of yet, is by and large the great unknown. Thank you. I think that is what we wanted to cover today. I appreciate for our listeners that we picked up on a broad range of topics that impact um, credit funds and the credit fund market. We're, of course, available to talk about any of those topics in much more detail uh, with my colleagues on this podcast or, indeed, other colleagues across the Clifford Chance Network. Um, so I want to thank Richard, Lily, and Jonathan I want to thank the audience for participating and dialing into this podcast. Um, again, for, for those of you who are interested in more information about any other podcasts or topics that we have talked about, um, on our website we have a series of different topics which we encourage you to, uh, to explore. Um, but with that, I want to thank you again. If you've been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast, and please think about subscribing to our podcast by visiting cliffordchance.com and follow us on LinkedIn.